So my name is Juliet Rooney Varga. Um, I'm an associate professor of environmental biology and director of the UMass Lowell Climate Change Initiative. And I'm here to talk to you today about the use of games and games, especially um, simulation-based role-playing games, as an opportunity for climate change education, communication, and also decision support. So if you've ever felt that climate change is hard to learn about, to think about, to talk about, and actually to solve problems around, you're right. There are a lot of challenges related to climate change education and communication. There's actually quite a growing body of cognitive and social science research that's pointed to some interesting reasons for these challenges. And there's also some good news. There's a growing group of tools for learning about climate change, and the best part is they're fun. As an educator or a student or anyone else who wants to bring the best available science to people that you interact with, we're developing freely available accessible tools that you can use and I want to tell you a little bit about why these tools might be a good approach and introduce a couple of them to you. So today, an overview of, of what I'm going to do in this talk is to very briefly describe a need for integrating climate change education into education in biology and into other fields. And I'll just refer you to another iBiology seminar that um, I've got if you want to learn more about climate change science, the basics of climate change science, and um, what that need really is. I also want to talk about a challenge. And that challenge is really why climate change is so challenging to learn about and also to respond to effectively. And that has to do with cognitive issues, cognitive problems, co cognitive challenges, with um, challenges in the affective domain or really in our emotional responses to climate change and also social forces that influence how we understand and respond to climate change. Then I want to talk about an opportunity that I see, which is really around simulation-based role-playing games, which I'll explain in a little bit, and as I mentioned, an invitation, an invitation to use these tools and to join this community, um, this growing community of people around the world who are using them. So just very, very briefly, the need. Scientific Scientific projections at this point are very clear. We are facing a dynamic future. If we don't act, we're talking about some potentially very serious impacts as a result of a changing climate. So here you just see temperature rise, global average temperature rise over time from 1900 projected out to 2100, and some different possibilities with some different impacts from locking in ice sheet melts or parts of ice sheet melts and sea level rise along with it, to plant and animal species being committed to extinction as a result of climate change if we go to higher temperature um, rises, to rapid sea level rise becoming possible with a really high um, warming scenario. If we take action that's commensurate with this problem, we're also going to see some changes. So this is a graph just showing emissions from 2005, in this case, to 2050 and some different possible trajectories of those emissions if we want to meet our best understanding of a goal of limiting temperature rise to no more than 2 degrees C above pre-industrial levels, which is currently the internationally accepted um, goal for averting dangerous human interference with the climate system. 
So this just shows you some different peak years in emissions and what those emissions trajectories might look like if we push that decision out. We can no longer act in 2011, that's in the past. So looking out to the future, 2015, 2020, if we push decisions out further, we'll end up with a steeper decline. And that's going to impact our economy and the way that we live um, uh, and transition, how rapidly we need to transition to a low carbon economy. So clearly, in order to deal with the situation, innovate and solve problems in it, we have some challenges. We have a need for students, citizens, and decision makers who understand this dynamic situation, who are empowered to solve problems and find new ways to address it, and who can meet those challenges. So one area that's a pro that's, that, that is a challenge, that is um, something we need to address, is in the area of mental models, cognition around climate change. So one, one um, concern is that we're not blank slates when it comes to climate change. We have lots of mental models, mental constructs of how the world works around us. And many of us also have misconceptions or flawed mental models about dynamic systems generally and about climate change in particular. Another challenge is we need to engage affective processing. So I'll explain why engaging the emotional side of understanding climate change could make a difference and could be important. And a third is that we need to engage social learning. Okay, I'm going to start with mental models. So here's an image. And my first question for you is, what do you see? If you could maybe jot down on a piece of paper or tell a person sitting next to you, what is this image? If you are from a Western culture, most of us tend to say, well, that's easy. It's maybe an adult and a child, and they're near a building, maybe inside the building or outside the building, and there's a window. But that's actually not what this image is, not, when, not intended to be by the person who drew it. It's actually a mother and a child under a tree, and she's got a basket with water in it on her head. And my point is simply that your pre-existing ideas, your pre-existing understanding of how the world works influences the inferences that you make about what you see in the world around you and actually can even influence what you see. So our mental models, our internal representations of how the world works around us, serve as a scaffold through which we incorporate new information and also serve as a filter through which we don't incorporate information. So we filter out information if it doesn't fit with our existing mental model. They're really great because they help us to interpret the world around us quickly and help us when making decisions about how to act and behave. So where we want to run into some problems is that around climate change especially, there are many common mental models that may not be correct, may be flawed. Here's one. Climate change will be gradual and it's not going to directly affect me. Another common one is that if we just stop growing emissions, the problem will be solved. Another really common one that 
I've heard many very intelligent people say, if it turns out climate change is a problem, well, we'll deal with it then. We'll wait and see. And then another common one is that we have to make a choice. It's either the economy or it's dealing with climate change. We can't do both. And that's something that we could discuss about why that's, is that, is that a, a flawed mental model or not? So this challenge is that once we have mental models in place, it's not that easy to change them. So that's especially true if they're entrenched and if they're supported by other forces like social, cognitive, or emotional drivers. So it's not like our typical education model where me just delivering information to you will fix the information that you've got and now you've got the correct mental model and we're all set to do the next thing. It's not that simple. Another challenge is that complex systems, including the climate system, often behave in ways that are not intuitive. So that creates a whole set of issues where we have mental models that we think we understand how complex systems work, but we actually do a very poor job simulating those um, complex systems mentally. And then, as I mentioned, our conventional approaches in education and communication generally of sort of delivering information has not shown to be sufficient to overcome flawed mental models. I want to talk a little bit about combining rational and analytic process, processing of information with emotional and affective processing. So this is kind of um, now fairly well established that we have two different physical locations in our brains and two different types of processing systems, one rational and analytic, the other emotional and affective. They've been called system two and system one with other names, but here are the basics. So the rational and analytic domain is logical. It encodes reality using abstract um, uh, encoding, such as symbols, words, equations. It uses algorithms. And these algorithms must be learned and cued. And it actually takes substantial effort to make that happen, to, to employ and to um, uh, carry out uh, rational and analytic processing. In contrast, a more ancient part of our processing system is emotional and affective, which is intuitive, relies on vivid, um, concrete representations of reality rather than abstract representations, uses stories and images to understand the world around us, and it doesn't need to be learned or cued. It's automatic. It's very rapid. And interestingly, when in conflict, if, for example, some information that you're receiving and processing analytically conflicts with your emotional or affective response to that information, affective domain almost always trumps. So we tend to rely more on affective processing than we frequently realize. And of course, rational analytic processing is key especially when we think about something as complex as climate change. It provides us with a way to understand the scientific basis, the causes and impacts, helps us to design technical responses and to analyze the impacts of those responses. But the emotional and affective domain is also important when it comes to learning about climate change. 
because it can provide a means to sustain engagement with the material, to make you not want to turn away from it, for example. It can provide motivation, which is necessary for a sustained effort, even on the rational and analytic side. And it's also needed for action. So it's one thing to understand something. It's another thing to do something about it. And emotional and affective um, engagement is necessary in order to take something that you understand and actually take action on it. We also know that affective responses can even drive analytic processing. So one example of that is motivated reasoning. And that would be a case where decision-making and beliefs are driven by the affective response. In other words, you, can't, you don't want to live with a cognitive dissonance of having one, um, one system understanding a situation to lead to certain outcomes and the other system, um, say the affective processing, rejecting those outcomes. In order to avoid that dissonance, we actually can sometimes drive decision-making based on affective response alone. And once again, delivering more information doesn't solve that problem. So now we've talked about mental models and affective responses. And I want to also talk about the challenge of social and cultural forces that can work against building robust mental models of climate change, or can work for them. So this, these are some data from a study actually in Australia, but fairly similar to data um, from the United States, and shows um, belief in climate change. So what you see on the x-axis are different groups. There's a group that believes that human-induced climate change is not happening. And they make up less than 10% of the population. Interestingly, when they were asked to estimate how many people actually agree with them and share the view that human-induced climate change is not happening, they overestimate that number. So even though they're less than 10% of the actual population, they estimated that about 43% of the population agree with them. That's in contrast with people who believed that human-induced climate change was happening, and they actually made up more than 50% of the population. But conversely, they underestimate the number of people that agree with them and believe that only 40% of the population shares their view. So why is this important? It's important because both of those groups underestimate the belief in human-caused climate change in the general population. And so just imagine you walk into a room full of people and you're estimating who believes in what. And if you think that most of them disagree with you about something, would you want to start talking to them about it? Maybe not. Okay, so at this point, we've introduced some challenges. And now I want to introduce some tools to overcome them. And these are simulation-based role-playing games. <clears throat> so here's this opportunity. And what I'm referring to here is a combination of using a computer simulation. And this computer simulation, or computer simulations, 
can represent the complexity of a physical and technical system. And that's great because it actually reduces the cognitive load on people like you and me who might want to interact with that system and explore its dynamics without having to fully understand all the different pieces that, that um, are simulated mentally. So it provides a means for us to explore complex systems um, and reduces the cognitive load needed to do so. But the gains also include role playing, and that's social. So that can actually represent the complexity of social interactions, which is softer, maybe less predictable, and it's represented by real people. And I actually just want to point out, too, that this is much like climate change itself. We have a case right now where the geophysical condition of our planet is being controlled, at least to a fair degree, by human activity. And human activity, of course, includes all aspects of, of our social systems, including you know, technical, economic, social, psychological, affective, etc. So interestingly, I think we're taking a, a problem which has all these different disciplines and complexities to it and addressing it with um, an approach that also has those um, different disciplines and aspects to it. So simulation-based role-playing games offer some great opportunities because since it's really not reality and we can introduce a time step of pretty much whatever we want, months, years, decades, centuries, we can compress time and reality. So you can play out long-term decisions and find out what's the effect further on down the line in a way that we can't do in reality. It allows us to experience the real thing without requiring the real thing. And when it comes to something like climate change, we're probably better off not quite doing the real experiment because we can only do that once. So we can explore the consequences of decisions that unfold over decades. And we can learn really through the same iterative process as the scientific method. If you think about it as scientists, what are we doing? We pose a hypothesis. We conduct an experiment or go out and collect data. And that hypothesis is based on an initial mental model. As we look at the data that comes in or that come in, we revise our mental model accordingly, adjust it, and then pose a new hypothesis and start that iterative process again. Yet, as scientists who are exploring climate change, we're expecting other people to just take our word for it. With a simulation-based role-playing game, we're not doing that. We're saying, you know what? Do the same thing that scientists do. Pose a hypothesis based on your existing mental models. Go out and collect data. Find out if the data match or don't match your mental model. Revise, iterate, try again. Learn for yourself. It's really the same thing as the scientific process. OK, and in simulation-based role-playing games, we're also not we're, we're simultaneously engaging both analytic and affective processing. As I mentioned, computer simulations that represent the best available science are clearly on the analytic side. But we're also engaging in experiential learning, learning by doing. And that includes often a visceral or affective response as well as a social experience. So one example that I want to mention to you is a game called World Climate. And what this game does is it puts students in the roles of delegates or students, or, or it could be decision makers, CEOs. We've run this with um, presidents of universities. 
um, and policymakers for that matter. And it puts whoever these people are in the roles of delegates to the United Nations climate change negotiations. The game is framed by the consensus, the best available consensus climate science through a computer simulation called C-ROADS, or Climate Rapid Overview and Decision Support. And actually, that model was developed initially to um, address the need to improve policymakers' mental models of the climate system. I'm going to give you a very, very brief overview of C-ROADS. You can learn more about it at Climate Interactive's website. Basically, what you see here is in red are user input options. So you've got different um, country emissions or negotiating block emissions that you can enter in and what those emissions trajectories might look like. You can enter in options about deforestation and afforestation and um, options of other greenhouse gas emissions like methane, nitrous oxide, um, SF gases, as well as, um, uh, as you see, land use changes. And then that feeds into a carbon cycle model, other greenhouse gas cycles, ultimately forcing the climate, influencing temperature, and sea level rise. So this is just a very, very broad interview. C-ROADS has been scientifically vetted by an external committee and recommended as an official United Nations tool. And I'm not going to get into the details as I mentioned, but just here's an example of a little bit of the complexity in the carbon cycle component. Um, you can see, well, you can't see much in the slide, but you can see that there is um, a lot more than you and I could mentally simulate in our own minds. C-ROADS has been calibrated to much more complex climate models. Here you see from AR4, the fourth assessment report of the IPCC, um, their projections with different emission scenarios. And in the circles, you see C-ROADS um, projections for those same emission scenarios um, matching quite well. The conclusions of the scientific review panel were quite favorable, um, saying that the C-ROADS model reproduced the response properties of state-of-the-art climate models very well and the review panel supported its widespread use. Indeed, it has um, been receiving widespread use, including by our Secretary of State, and actually is used quite a bit by our State Department and by users around the world. The game that I'm going to tell you about um, briefly today has been played by people ranging from Nobel Prize-winning scientists to EU government policymakers, CEOs from major corporations in China, the EU, the US, oil executives, university students on five continents, high school students, and more. So when we run world climate, we start with the setup of the room. So we have the wealthy countries, the US, the EU, Japan, Australia, developed nations of the world. We also have the rapidly developing nations. They're an increasingly important geopolitical force in the global negotiations. China, India, Russia, Indonesia, and others. And then we have low-lying ocean states, sub-Saharan African countries, much of South America, the less developed countries who have done the least to contribute to this problem, but whose populations are growing and whose emissions are growing as well. Welcome to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. If I were running this game with you now, I'd also take on a role. 
as a woman, I take on the role of Christiana Figueres, the Executive Secretary of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, currently. If I were a man, I might become Ban Ki-moon. But it's important for me also to get into a role and really set the stage so that we can be present um, and, and using all of our you know, analytic, affective, and social processing. So here you are. Welcome to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change Conference of Parties. What do you want to do? What decisions will you make? What would you do if you were representing a developing country with many people who are below the global poverty line? You haven't done much to contribute to this problem yet, and you want to grow and to have an opportunity to have your economy lifted up. What would you do if you were the US team? You're just coming out of a recession. Maybe you need to think about how you would transition your economy, but protect that somewhat fragile economic situation. What if you were a country from sub-Saharan Africa? What would your concerns be then? So you have a chance to think about these questions and think about what you would do in terms of emissions decisions, decisions about protecting rainforests if you have them, decisions about afforestation, decisions about other greenhouse gases. And here's just an example of what that might look like. This is SeaLearn, an online version of the SeaRoad simulation. What you see here are fossil fuel emissions by country group, in this case with the three block version, developed, rapidly developing, and less developed nations. And that's over on the left-hand side. And then you also see choices that you can make about emissions from deforestation or protecting rainforests, and emissions from, or sorry, sequestration from afforestation, referring to um, planting trees or increasing the, the land area of forests and therefore increasing the terrestrial carbon sink or the amount of carbon dioxide that's taken up by, by uh, land plants. And then what you see over here are impacts. So we've got CO2 concentration in the atmosphere and in this case also in the lower panel, temperature. And that is represented as temperature change over pre-industrial times with a goal of somewhere between one and a half degrees C and two degrees C increase above pre-industrial times. And that two degrees C increase represents the internationally accepted goal for avoiding dangerous human interfer interference with the climate system. That same goal is represented in the CO2 concentration as 450 parts per million CO2. You can see that line over there. Okay, so what you can see in, in terms of decisions that are made then is if I were representing a wealthy country, say the United States or the developed nations, I would want to choose a year in which my emissions will stop growing and then a year in which they start to decline, they start to go down. And then I also need to choose a rate for that decline. And here it's represented as an annual reduction rate. So year after year, what would that decline? Um, if let's say I select a 2% rate, um, it would mean that year after year, we would have 2% um, compounded over time, continued 2% reduction um, sustained. So here I've got decisions being made where I'm putting in 2020 and 2030 for my stop growth year and reduction start year with 2% decline. You can see the impact that I've got. And then 
for developing nations, 2025, let's say, and 2030, also with a pretty ambitious 2% annual rate of decline. And for developing B nations or less developed countries, they're deciding to do 2030, a little bit later, and 2035, with also a 2% rate of decline. So these are just some examples of some decisions that you might want to make. You can see the changes in emissions. We can also play with, um, and we can also see the changes in temperature and CO2 concentration. So we're get, making some headway towards our goal. We're not there yet. But if we also add um, re reducing emissions from deforestation by protecting rainforests and planting trees through afforestation, we're actually coming a lot closer to our goal. So here what we've got then is um, something on the order of 520 parts per million and something on the order of close to 2.8 um, degrees C rise in temperature by 2100. So this particular set of decisions didn't quite meet the goal, but it made quite a bit of progress. And we could run this round um, again and see if decisions could come closer. So I just want to point out that it's not particularly exciting for me to show you um, the simulation like this um, without you being able to make your own decisions. But I'll just give you an example of some students receiving one of my fabulous lectures. You can see how engaged they are. And that conventional approach, I don't think I'm that bad lecturing, but that's one way to deliver information. And here's the same group of students who are negotiating a deal. And they're making their own decisions about what to do. Um, and in this case, arguing about whose fault it is when China is emitting, but the clothes are getting shipped to the US. Uh, whose emissions are those? So they're getting into some of the details here and trying to figure out what the best deal is. This, this experience has been evaluated by an external team. And here are some of the comments that came out of that evaluation. Um, it was cited as an activity that promoted um, the most learning. It was very powerful at shaping students' understanding of what it will truly take to enact climate change policy on a global scale. And also something that I think is really important in terms of systems thinking and really trying to understand how complex systems work is having the opportunity to experience a point of view other than your own. So this is just one of many tools that I want to um, introduce to you. C-Learn and C-Roads are available freely for download. We've just developed a new simulation role-playing game around En-ROADS, an energy, um, energy policy simulation. And in this case, in the game called World Energy, participants get to take on the roles of leaders of key energy and economic sectors and make decisions about things like R&D for new technology, policies for energy, whether it's um, subsidies or prices, energy efficiency, investment in R&D, population consumption, and more. So we're really excited about that and happy to share that with you. We've also got uh, a MOOC where you can learn more about um, systems thinking as it applies to climate change called the Climate Leader. And I just invite you to um, check out Climate Interactive's website 
where you can find these tools and other simulations to help explore the dynamic aspects of climate change and solutions to it. And then I just want to point out that I think that we really have a great opportunity at the nexus of education, communication, and decision support. We have a growing number of decision support tools that represent these complex physical and technical systems in a way that's interactive and accessible and really created for decision makers, for policymakers. We can take those tools and bring them in to interactive, fun, role-playing situations in education and communication to help people experience both the complex physical and technical systems, but also the social systems that go along with making decisions around those, um, those areas. And I think we have an opportunity to reach students, leaders and policymakers, and, the, and communities and the public simultaneously with these approaches. So the best way to learn, of course, is by doing, not by listening to me. So come and play. Um, there's a growing recognition that games can provide a powerful tool for understanding, communicating, innovating, and making decisions about climate change, and is also a great way to reach the people that you work with or that you're interested in communicating with about um, these issues. I'd like to end by thanking the many people who worked on this project, including the Climate Interactive team, Ellie Johnston, Andrew Jones, Travis Frank, Elizabeth Sowen, students at UMass Lowell who worked with me, Devin Hawkins, Cecilia Hunt, Jared Neese, Xenia Perukovskaya, and Cameron Stanley, and John Starman and Kenneth Rath. Thank you.